0: Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Brian Hefty, live in the Morton studio. I'll be joined shortly by my brother Darren. Today on the show we're going to talk just a little bit about phosphorus. It's an incredibly important nutrient. It's one of those primary nutrients, the NP, NK, The P stands for phosphorus. We'll get to that throughout the show today. If you've got any questions for us about phosphorus or anything going on in your farm, you can give us a call, 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844 844- Four four two four seven four three. You can also email us radio at agphd.com or send us a note on X, AgPhD Media, Darren Hefty or Brian Hefty. All right, so I wanted to talk about phosphorus just to kind of start things out here. And obviously, I could talk by myself for the whole show on phosphorus because it's that important. And we do get a lot of questions about this. So here's number one it doesn't move very well in soil unless you get the concentration ridiculously high. It was a few weeks ago on the show we had Bill Brush on from out in California and we were talking about tree groves and I said, Bill, how do you do this? Because you're not going to work the phosphorus in. How do you get the phosphorus down into the ground? He said, well, we have to get the concentration way up. So uh, unless we're talking hundreds of pounds per acre, like hundreds and hundreds of pounds per acre, phosphorus just typically is not going to move so in a lot of cases when Darren and I look at soil tests we get them in every day and by the way we will get to the Ag PhD mailbag later in the show here um, we've gotten some soil tests in and a number of other questions but anyway I was just going to say when we look at these soil tests quite commonly we see 20 pounds 50 pounds 100 pounds something like that which I mean it, it's not zero but Your crop needs a lot of phosphorus. So I want you to think about this. Here, I'll just take corn, for example. So I'm pulling up the Ag PhD Fertilizer Removal app. It's a free download for your smartphone, your tablet. And then I'm punching in corn. And I'll take a look at both the grain removal and the stover removal. And let's just say we're going for, like in our farm, we're usually shooting for 250 bushel corn. You know how much you need? You need 127.5 pounds of phosphate. Now, did you notice the word that I used there? It was phosphate. And you go, wait a second. We were talking phosphorus, and now we're talking phosphorus and phosphate. What's going on? Uh, Phosphorus and phosphate are two different things. So you have to run a conversion. So you're going to multiply your phosphorus number times 2.3 to get your phosphate number. So let's just say we had a hundred pounds of phosphorus. You multiply that times two point three, that'd give us two hundred and thirty pounds of phosphate. Okay. So I know I, it's a little confusing. I'm sorry, but that's the difference. So and, and it does get very confusing because a lot of people will say, "Well, map is eleven fifty two o. Yep." It's 52% phosphorus. And I go, no, it's 52% phosphate, 52% phosphate. So there is definitely a difference there. Make sure you know what you're talking about, phosphorus or phosphate. Next thing, nutrient ratios. And I didn't realize this was as big a deal as it was until we started running more numbers on our own farm. Phosphorus to zinc and phosphorus to copper. But, oh, boy, we can really see it. Now, there are a variety of tests out there, and we'll talk about that in just a second. A lot of different types of tests you can run on phosphorus, and a couple different types we run run commonly on micronutrients. But just in the general ballpark, we're talking about roughly a 10 to 1 ratio of phosphorus to zinc, and again, it all depends on the type of test you're running, okay? Okay but 10 to 1 phosphorus to zinc and 30 to 1 phosphorus to copper. And if we're somewhere in that general ballpark of that ratio, then usually things are pretty good. But we can sure see it in our data when we get the phosphorus to zinc ratio out of whack or we get the phosphorus to copper ratio out of whack, then all of a sudden we're dropping down in yield that's not good. That's not what we want. So just make sure you're taking a look at those ratios besides just saying, well, I got to have this many pounds or this many parts per million of phosphorus because I made this mistake myself on our own farm over 20 years ago. When we first started loading ground up, instead of having the tiny little fertility levels we did, we said, you know what, we're going to go for bigger yields. So we put on a whole bunch of P and K, which was good we our yields increased, but they didn't increase near what they should have been because almost immediately we started noticing in tissue analysis we were having issues with certain things like zinc. So, the more you do, the more you apply phosphorus, and the more you change that ratio phosphorus to zinc, the more that zinc is going to become a yield limiting factor for you. So that's a big deal. All right, last thing that I got here let, is let
1: me just add in here on this ratio thing here before you move well, on. So we get a lot of questions from farmers. Hey, can you go through all the ratios that you need? I would just say this. Let's let's keep it pretty simple here to start with. If you're just starting on this build program, don't just build one nutrient. Build them all up a little bit as you're going. Because what happened to us is we got phosphorus way to the high end of the ratio of the, the range that you'd want phosphorus to be at, while zinc and copper and some of these micros were still on the extreme low end. So if you're going to have... P and K at the high end of the rate range that, hey, I need to be in this range for good yields. Great, but bring those micros and bring those secondary nutrients up to those levels too.
0: The different types of phosphorus tests, there are three that we usually talk about. There's the Malik-3, the Olsen, and the Bray tests. Now with the Bray, there are two different Bray tests. There's a Bray or Bray-1 and a Bray-2, or a weak Bray and a strong Bray. The weak Bray is basically telling you what's available for phosphorus today. The Olsen test is, we believe is a little bit more accurate in higher pH soils, and will also tell you what's available in the soil today. Okay, so the weak bray or the olsen telling you what's available today. The strong bray test and the Malik 3 test tell you more what's available today and what we believe is going to come available during this next growing season. So I want to go back to one of the things that I said a little bit earlier about how much phosphorus you need in the soil and i said 250 bushel corn 127 and a half pounds of phosphate but just think about the root size that you have are you going to be able to extract every last drop of phosphorus in your soil no way not even close you have to have extra if you want to have enough for that crop so we'll talk phosphorus coming up next
2: This season, get medieval on Ryzictonia with the powerful protection of Excalia Fungicide from Valent USA. Here to shield your sugar beets from the treachery of Ryzictonia, Excalia delivers excellent staying power, keeping your sugar beets from being conquered. Stay one step ahead of Ryzictonia with the powerful protection of Excalia. Ask your retailer
3: or visit valent.com/excalia to learn more. Always read and follow legal instructions. Get more durability for less downtime with Soil Warrior Strip Tillage from environmental tillage
4: systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and reduce passes and fuel usage. Now that's ROI. Learn more about ETS at SoilWarrior.com. Did you know 20% of stored corn is overventilated by three points of moisture? On 100,000 bushels, that's a whole semi-load. Stop this problem for as little as $2,100 per bin with the end zone for corn from Farm Shop MFG. Learn more at FarmShopMFG.com.
1: When I step on someone's farm, I feel like I've already walked a mile in their shoes.
3: I spend spring on the tractor and fall in the combine.
1: I see the excitement in my kids' eyes on our farm, but worry if there's enough of it for all of them. I make sure everything Case IH makes meets the challenges farmers face, because I face them too. My name is Ryan, I am a farmer, and I work at Case IH. Case IH, built by farmers. back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. We're talking phosphorus on today's program and it's a timely one because for a lot of farmers across the country, harvest is beginning or soon to begin. Thinking about fertility, thinking about soil sampling. I know we've got soil sampling going on right now on our farm and phosphorus is absolutely one of those big ticket items that you want to make sure you have plenty of. And of course, if you have a big crop, you got to keep putting more out there to to replace what you just took and one of those farmers who raises big crops is Matt Miles. He works with the Extreme Ag Group and farms down in the state of Arkansas. Matt, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Well, pretty good. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. Man, Matt's fertilizer bill has to be pretty stout when you're pulling off the kind of yields you guys are getting.
6: Well, yeah, and that's, you know, and of course, you know, you know this for sure, but that's one of the most important things that we pay attention to. That's where You know, that's where everything starts is with that soil sample and getting a correct soil sample to be able to get the nutrients back in that you took out and, you know, whatever desired values you want above that for your yield goal.
1: You know, I know we talk about chicken litter and manure and compost and lots of different sources of fertility out there. Uh, obviously, you just got to get a good analysis on all those things to figure out where you're at. Do you do you variable rate all of those things? Or when you put something like litter out or manure, you just put a straight rate out of that and then you variable rate afterwards?
6: That, that The way we do it, you know, and of course we analyze each house of litter. So litter is our number one source of phosphorus. Uh, every now and then we'll put a little more out, you know, just to kind of band-aid some situations. But majority all of our phosphorus comes from from the litter. So we'll get an analysis on the on the litter from each chicken house or to each chicken farmer. And we pretty much know from year to year, unless they change some kind of feed rations, you know what that's gonna be. And then we apply that amount of li- litter depending on what our insole phosphorus levels are. So for instance, if they're below fifty you know, we'll apply two times, and if they're above 50, normally we'll apply one time, and then our variable rate will always come in, in the form of our potassium.
1: You know, we look at these big nutrients, I know everybody wants to focus on NPNK, but of course, Brian was talking about, man, if you get your phosphorus really high and you don't have enough of some of these micros, that can be limiting too. So certainly we're worried about the the big ticket item like phosphorus, but but we're certainly concerned about balance too. How, how do you seek that right balance, Matt? Because I was, I was saying from our own farm, if we're towards the top end on phosphorus, then we want to be towards the top end on the micros as well. Is that a good strategy?
6: That's an absolute good strategy. You can you can go backwards actually by over applying one nutrient, you know, and, and not applying enough of the of the other. And a lot of times we fail to to pay attention as much to the micros as we do the macros and, and it's a it's a full systems approach to, to make all that balance out.
1: You know, with phosphorus, one of the challenges that a lot of growers have is they just can't get it to move through soil very well other than by tillage. Have you found any other secrets to that or, or how do you get phosphorus to, to build up at lower levels, I mean, deeper levels in your soil?
6: Well, what we found is we can apply, you know, there's a product called NutriCharge by uh, Agritech. And we've had really good luck getting, our trouble is being we'll have plenty of phosphorus in the soil, but it'll be tied up. And and that product there, we've seen some really good results the last three years, um, testing it the first two years, and then now it's just a grower standard practice of actually releasing, you know, the negative charges from the positive charges and allowing that phosphorus to get in the plant. We've seen a pretty significant yield increase by being able to do that. And that's been, that one of our toughest challenges is, it's getting that phosphorus, no matter where it's at in the soil, to react in the plant. And that's that's helping us, I will say that.
1: Yeah, getting that consistent uptake is a really big deal for, for plants, no matter what crop you're raising. We're talking phosphorus today. It's one of the big ones. We want to make sure we have plenty of pounds of that out there that are available for our crop each season. And we're getting some good advice here from Matt Miles. He works with the Extreme Ag Group and farms down in Arkansas as well. Matt, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on today. Thanks for for sharing the info and, and good luck. Stay safe during harvest.
6: Yes, sir. Thank you all. Have a good day.
1: Got a question right now from Jim on the phone lines. And again, our phone lines are open at 844-44-AG-PHD if you have a question. Jim, how are you doing? Hey, Darren. Missed you at Freeman, but
7: you were there last year. Darren was there, or Brian was there. Excuse me. That was nice. It was, I learned a lot. And thank you very much for that. Great bet. meal.
1: You bet. What's um, on your mind today with corn?
7: Well, it's getting pretty dry. And I've read different stuff over the years. And then I think successful farming. One of them had a big article last you're, you know, you got this phantom yield loss. When it gets below 20%, I've always, my dad, when this taking it out about 20 because your ear loss is a lot less. You're getting docked, but you're selling water also, you know. Yep. And you get the season on. Usually we get a big old wind event or two or snow and Halloween and things like that. And uh, birds in the hands worth a lot. What do you guys, when do you start taking it out? You got... Fancy
0: drying system, I imagine. So, Jim, uh, let me just first say, I ran our grain dryers on our farm for 20 years straight, and uh, we don't have anything super fancy. We just had a couple of smaller continuous flow dryers, but if you just kept them running 24 hours a day, you get through a lot of bushels. But anyway, what we always found is I liked starting a little earlier just because the weather was warmer and it was easier to dry the grain. And then we started hearing... And, and, you know, the other thing is it's very obvious when you're out in the field ever in a combine and it's 15 to 17% moisture corn. um, There's a little bit that ends up in the ground. There's stuff flying up in the air. I I mean, it's just... you, you can you can visually see it. Now, how to quantify it, it gets a little challenging, but you can see, hey, there's an issue. And so we started harvesting a little bit wetter, a little wetter, because I'm like, guys, let's just start a little early. We'll get done faster. When the weather's warmer, it's easier for me to dry it anyway. So I liked starting at about in the range of 20 to 24% moisture. And 24 I thought was pushing it a little bit. 20 I could sail stuff through the dryer pretty well. But... You know, a lot of people are talking about great big phantom yield loss, and I'm like, I've never found that. We've we've har- started harvesting, we come back and harvest later, and yeah, you can see there's a little bit of difference in yield uh, after it dries down. You know, we're losing something, but I've never thought it was that much. And when they say phantom, I still don't know that it's necessarily phantom. I don't think it's any big mystery. I think more is on the ground, more gets eaten by animals, uh, more goes up in the air, more just. Disintegrates. Even in our trucks, you can see it with the bees' wings and everything else. I mean, there's just more stuff flying when it gets drier. So yeah, in the 20 to 24 range, I think is a good time to go. But the challenge for a lot of guys is if they're hauling it right to town, then the what they charge there is it's quite a bit. And I don't know how much you're going to be able to overcome that. How much you're going to gain yield-wise if you're harvesting at say 24 percent? I think that'd be really pushing it, and a lot of grain elevators, quite frankly, will not even take it at 24. So, I mean, there are a right. lot of factors there. We haul, over the years, we used to haul all our grain to an ethanol plant, and a lot of times they'd only take it at 18. So, a lot of guys would let it dry in the field down to 18. Well, I didn't want to do that, for sure. So, we were trying to get it out, and then we would haul it in after that. So, that, that that's my thing. I'd say 20 to
7: 24%. And then you go, you know, these drying systems and bins are pretty... You can have hundreds of thousands of dollars in them pretty quickly. You can,
0: you can, but one of the things that happens is when, and this is something I didn't even think about at the time either, but when I was a young farmer and agronomist, my dad's like, well, look at all these other guys that they're sitting in line at the elevator and then that slows up their harvest. He said, we can hustle, we can go and we haul everything to the bin and then we're done with harvest faster, which gives us more time to spread our own fertilizer and do do our own tiling and all this other stuff which makes us money too. So he said, you're going to get right. that back. But, and you got to look at this as a long-term deal. I mean, many of our bins on the farm, they're 30 years old. Our One of our grain dryers right. is, it might be 25 years old now. So, I mean, these things mm-hmm. can last if you just, and you know, do a little maintenance. Right.
7: And I've noticed since the ethanol plants are all over, we just haven't had the lineups like we had 20, 30 years ago. I mean, you can drive in. Harvest after harvest lately. And there's so much more on farm storage, too. I imagine that. Yeah. Yep. Helping that too. A lot too.
0: Well, the other thing is, Jim, and this is my complaint today I don't think that the corn yield is going to be there. Maybe the government's right and all their estimates are right. It's possible. But I just I just don't see it personally. It, we were hot and dry through a lot of the Midwestern United States, but anyway, yes, you're right. I mean, it seems oh, like the lines have been a lot less. So hey Jim I, I, Jim, Jim, I apologize. We got to get running. But uh, if you got more to talk about, just hang on. We'll be right back after this
3: break. From mowing to loading or even moving snow, a John Deere compact utility tractor is ready for any task. During the CNB summer blowout event going on now, get yours for zero money down and 0% interest for 84 months. This offer won't last forever, so check out your nearest CNB or learn more at Deerequipment.com. From machine storage buildings and farm shops to dependable
2: buildings to house your livestock, regardless of building size or use, Morton has a building for every budget. To learn how we can help you expand your farm operation, visit MortonBuildings.com.
3: So how's harvest? Higher yield potential starts with the season long systemic disease protection of Zyway brand fungicides from FMC. Zyway brand fungicides protect corn crops from key foliar diseases and support physiological benefits that help develop healthier, higher yielding corn for a difference you'll appreciate at harvest. Visit your FMC retailer for an at plant advantage. Always read and follow all label directions.
5: Are you ready?
3: We got the need. The need for seed treatment.
5: Start, Start your, your engines. engines. Ready,
8: set, Intego.
2: Intego.
3: Start your season strong with Intego sweet soybeans, Intego fungicide soybeans, and Intego sweet cereals OF from Valent USA. Ask your Valent rep about seed treatment solutions or visit valent.com Intego. Always read and follow label instruction.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today, talking about phosphorus. And I know you're probably thinking, oh no, (laughs) I'm going to have to spend more money. Maybe. Uh, It just depends on what you've got in your soil. We really do encourage soil testing to start things off. And the other thing that we've gotten really, really big on now that the technology is there where you can do many of these things yourself is variable rate. That has been awesome. I mean, obviously, you've been able to variable rate for forever, but now to have things fully automated, to have um, maps that you can build yourself very easily, it's something that I'm, I'm honestly surprised more people aren't doing. I, I do talk to a lot of folks that say, well, I'm, I hear you talk about that, but I'm not doing it yet. But I look at just the variance on yield maps, and you'll see it as you go across your fields this fall. Look at your yields going up and down. Why would you put the same amount of fertilizer on everywhere? Or, um, well, there's just a lot of different ways to look at that. Got one of our friends along here right now, Kellen Huber, uh, who's with Keltec Ag up in Man- or up in Saskatchewan. I almost said Manitoba there. Sorry about that, Kellen. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Uh,
2: hey, thank you very much for inviting me.
1: I guess maybe the guys over in Manitoba aren't so bad either.
2: Oh, uh, we all get along. It's like the east <laughs> and the west, you know, you always have friends all over the place.
1: You bet, you bet. How about phosphorus? Yep. This is one uh it's it's a real challenge. I, I look at our farm, we've been in a drought for three years. And when we see phosphorus that doesn't move down in soil very well, boy, you get no rain, it's for sure not moving down in soil very well.
2: No, it isn't very, thin. talk about drought, we had a nasty drought here this year, and then the other thing of it is, we have very heavy soils, like we're talking CECs of, you know, some on the low side of maybe 25, 26, and on the high side, 40, 50, we even, I've even seen soils in the 60s up here for CECs, so you want to talk about uh, phosphate, uh, tough to move through the soil profile. Yeah, we deal with it on a lot, a lot of bases.
1: Well, we get so many guys that say, "Okay, I want to be able to see." Well, just say you're in Saskatchewan, and you say, "You know what? I'm I'm counting on an average crop, or hoping for an average crop." And I get one of those years where you know what? It actually rained, and, and the weather's actually in our favor this year. I might get twenty five percent, or even fifty percent, over what an average crop is. Now I want to put more phosphorus out there to try and feed it. It's pretty tough to do that in season.
2: Yeah, well, there is some foliars that you can do. I, I have gotten away quite a bit of time with actually using like a 31818 um, in a foliar application. I've even tried some other products. So, you know, um, I tried another product that actually was a 215193, and that actually seemed to work really well. Um, you get that uh, driving factor, and You know, I I listened earlier when you guys talk about the different ratios of nutrients and everything else. And the one thing that I found up here in Saskatchewan, and I know you're going to ask, elemental sulfur. You know, we've taken and uh, drove phosphorus into the plant with elemental sulfur. And actually, Kenzie was the one that actually said to me, you know, you should go and look that... True phosphate, you know, in an elemental form and true elemental sulfur, in it's elemental form. Actually, in a one-to-one ratio, you'll get optimization on phosphorus availability to the plant. Well, that's one thing that I've really kind of worked on, you know, with sulfur and phosphate.
1: That's yeah, interesting. You know, you think about all the different forms of these nutrients that are out there, and for, for a lot of farmers, they'll say, well, a pound's a pound, right? But it really isn't. It's really different than that.
2: No, and you're right, because phosphates are really uh, unavailable in the soil. It ties up, and, it, and then there's orthophosphate, which the plant kind of really wants to take up. So it's in the conversion of water, microbiology, making the nutrients available. And then you're also looking at stuff like Mulder's chart. You know, when you were talking about phosphorus, one of the things that Brian had brought to the table, again, is the ratio and relationship of copper. But one of the other things that ties up a lot of phosphorus is calcium when you have too much or too little. But one of the energy factors that I've been really finding is a good available potassium to accompany phosphate into the plant. And then also the last one being iron. Iron actually has a synergy with uh, phosphorus. So there's a lot of different, as you mentioned earlier on in the show, building up your entire soil profile of nutrients really always helps bring on other phosphates, other nutrients.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a lot that goes into this, and you mentioned Mulder's chart there, and just some of the different relationships between nutrients. That's something for for anyone listening. If you aren't familiar with Mulder's chart, you may check that one out online too. Hey, Kellen, we gotta let you run because so we got your buddy Alan Perry coming up next. Good talking to you though.
2: All right, good, excellent. Have a great day.
1: All right, uh, thanks, Kellen. Uh, next up, we got Alan Perry. Uh, he's up in the state of Maine and works with the Farm Technologies Network. Alan, how you doing?
7: Hey, great.
1: All right, so we got Kellen out here getting things started for you. Uh, when you look at phosphorus up in, in the northeastern states, and I know you work with folks all around the globe here, but uh, just in your kind of local area there, what are the big challenges with phosphorus and getting enough into the plants?
8: Um, on I use a Kimsey soil test, so that's my reference point, but Um, some years ago when I started working with the program, uh, the soil tests we were taking here in Aroostook County were showing the highest, uh, phosphate levels on the Kinsey test anywhere in the world. Um, in the last 20 years, we've increased that number by almost 50%. So our numbers are extremely high here. Uh, not a situation that everybody has. If you're going to have an excess, that may be one of the better ones, but, uh, we still do have challenges with getting enough phosphorus in the right place at the right time.
1: Yeah. And then we start talking about that relationship with some of these other nutrients at that point when phosphorus is naturally high. Uh, something's probably low because I don't think Maine is the Garden of Eden yet, is it?
8: Uh, just where I work. Ah. <laughs> <others are> <laughs> One of the one of the big challenges that goes with us and other places as well are cool, wet spring. Uh, that's the first time we'd really like to get some phosphorus in the plant to get those small seeds or even potato plants started. Uh, but cool, wet soils don't work well with phosphorus. The microbiology is not there to help us. So that's the first challenge. And then, of course, at flowering time, that's another big time uh got to have energy to drive that plant if you're going to get the pods, if you're going to get the, the kernels on the corn cob, that kind of stuff. So uh, those are the two times we're really conscious of it. And if we're going to be short, it's probably those two times.
1: No, when you look at at testing for phosphorus, uh, are you looking mainly in the top six inches? Is that where most of the root mass is at and that's where most of the microbiology is at? Is that enough if you're building it up there or do you have to look deeper, especially when you get into some of the crops like potatoes?
8: Well, uh, the top six inches is what uh, is our best management zone, uh, both for cost and for tillage and, and oxygen, that kind of thing. Uh, I always, if I have a grower that's working with us more than a year or two, uh, I always like to take that sample, uh, six to 12 inches deep, just to see what kind of bank account we've got there to work with. Is it, is it getting bigger or getting smaller on some of these elements? And, uh, the tillage that we use today certainly goes down eight, 10, 11 inches deep. So we do look lower, um. But uh, the, the easy management zone is the, is the upper part, certainly.
1: Now the other thing too, like you mentioned, cool wet soils, certainly you've got soils that are going to freeze every year when you're in the north. It, it You know you're going to have a time during the season that those soils are going to be cool. Uh, when you look at the different crops that you're raising, uh, getting that phosphate intake up there, you mentioned a couple of critical times both to get things started and certainly during the, the reproduction time in, in each plant's life. You just need to have phosphorus there all the time. or talking with Alan Perry and he made probably the best comment here is man, you got a soil test. You gotta know what's out there and it's also good to look down a little bit deeper too to see hey if the roots do have to go deeper, is there anything down there to get? Hey Alan, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on hey no problem no snow here yet so we're
8: good.
1: <laughs> that's good well we're in that critical snow free time period across of the of the country of uh, the we'll talk we more about
8: case of got a hurricane coming this weekend, so uh, we're going to get through that first. <laughs>
3: When nematode pressure mounts, seed-applied Trunemco provides assurance. Growers using Trunemco are seeing a difference. From early plant vigor to improved soybean and cotton yield, impressive results are everywhere, and we want to hear about yours. You could win $20,000 and be named a Trunemco Top Grower. Request your starter kit at newfarm.com forward slash top grower, but don't delay. Contest ends November 30th. No purchase necessary, void were prohibited, see full rules. newfarm.com forward slash top
5: Now is your chance to refuel your farm equipment for free. Register today at Fuel.Closs.com for your chance to win ten thousand dollars in free farm diesel fuel. From our high-capacity harvesting equipment to our high-horsepower tractors, Closs is known for superior performance and exceptional fuel efficiency. So go to Fuel.Closs.com, then check out the advanced equipment at your local Closs dealer. That's Fuel.ClAas.com.
3: Looking for a herbicide as versatile and reliable as your favorite pocket knife? Anthem Flex Herbicide offers the versatility you need to keep your crops clean. Protect your wheat this season with unmatched flexibility and extended residual control of broadleaf weeds and tough grasses, including Italian ryegrass. Minimize resistance and help maximize yields with Anthem Flex Herbicide. Visit your FMC retailer or ag.fmc.com to learn more. Always read and follow all label directions.
1: Talking about phosphorus on today's Ag PhD radio show and taking your calls and questions at 844 44 phd You can also email us radio at agphd.com. Brian, phosphorus certainly a big ticket item and one that as we built levels on our farm, it, it's been so good. When we get into years like this where we're dry and struggling. We need that concentration to be pretty good in soils if you don't have enough water to get much out. Every drink of water that plant takes has got to be full of nutrients.
0: Right. Yep, that's right. So whether it's P or K, you want to have your levels higher so you can survive better in drought conditions. But the challenge with putting a bunch of phosphorus out is this. If you don't own the ground, there's a high probability that a lot of the phosphorus you apply is going to get used by somebody else if this is your last year farming that land. So that's where it's really nice to have either a long-term lease, or you own the ground, or this is why a lot of people talk about banding. And I get it. You know, if you look at, well, we've even done, uh, we did a really long-term study in our farm over about 500 acres of broadcast and about 500 acres of band. And we did find over an 11-year period, you could get by with, well, I hate to use the word less fertilizer on the band. Let me rephrase it. Uh, You had to put on 50% more phosphorus where you had broadcast versus the band. So a lot of people hear that, and I'm a farmer too, and you hear that as, well, I get to use less on my, my banded ground. Yes, you do get to use less, in the short term at least, but don't forget, your crop still needs the nutrients it needs. You can't just say, "Well, well remember I said 250 bushel corn, 127 and a half pounds of phosphate." You're not all of a sudden going to get by on 80 pounds of phosphate year after year after year. If you put less on, well, here the the other thing is this: there's grain removal and there's stover removal. So, if, or I shouldn't say stover removal, there's grain. What it takes to produce the grain and what it takes to produce the stover. So, out of that 127 and a half pounds, 87 and a half goes to the grain, 40 roughly goes to the stover. Okay, so if you leave all the stover out in the field, all the leaves, the stalks, the roots, everything remain in the field, then you only have 87 and a half pounds that leave with the grain. But my point is if let's say you were putting on 60 pounds, you leave all the stover out there, but you're only putting 60 pounds on in the band. And you go, oh, I got 250 bushel corn. I did it on 60 pounds. You didn't do it on 60 pounds. You did it on 87 and a half pounds. You only applied 60, which means you sucked 27 and a half pounds out of the soil. Okay, So where I'm going with this is, yes, in the short term, you can get by with less banding. You can because you're going to have less tie-up, number one, and you're going to have the, the nutrient placed where the roots hopefully are going to find it. Because what I always say to people is, like, roots don't magically know where there's fertilizer out there. They don't go, oh, well, yeah, hey, we, we somehow sense that there's fertilizer over here in this area, so we're going to send our best root after it. It doesn't work that way. Roots, I, I, plants are dumb. Okay, And they're going to take the path of least resistance. They don't know. They they just luckily run into a bunch of fertilizer. That's the way it works. Now, when they do run into an area that has a lot of fertility, they will put on more roots there. We have done some experiments in the past where we'll show this behind glass. And you, you have a little zone of fertility. And once the roots get down to that provided it's not too much and they burn off. Uh, but once the roots get down to that, you'll see expansion of roots there. A whole bunch more roots will grow right there. So once they sense, oh, hey, there's a much fertilizer here, they put more roots on, which means if you've got your fertilizer fairly concentrated in some type of band, you've got a much better chance to recover this fertilizer, especially when it's, like for us, we'll do a lot of strip-till. Well, just think about this for a second. When we strip-till, that's literally our last pass before we plant. I've got the fertilizer straight below where that seed is planted and I have no compaction down at least to the depth of however deep I, I went with my strip machine. Eight inches, 10 inches, whatever it is, and there's the fertilizer. So the roots are going to take the path of least resistance like they always do. They're going to grow down there and they are going to find that fertilizer, at least a lot of it. So we do have a better chance for for good uptake, especially when we start talking about really heavy soils and all the tie-up we get and all the other problems we have and compaction and everything else. This banding thing is nice. But just think about if you broadcast and you own the ground. Oh, well, here, let me step back. Let's say that Grandpa applied manure 50 years ago. Can you still find those areas? I'm betting you can because I talk to farmers all the time who say, yeah, take a look at this uh, heavily high fertility area. Yeah, that's where they used to spread manure years and years and years ago. It shows you how long it lasts in the soil. And it shows you that when you put on a big rate, you're not going to recover that right away. But eventually it's going to be there for somebody. And a lot of times, and just ask yourself this, the area where grandpa spread manure 50 years ago, is that pretty good soil today? You bet it is. It's still got good levels of fertility. So I'm just trying to say here, when you band, that I look at as more of a short-term approach. And there's nothing wrong with that, okay? But if you broadcast and you own the ground and you go, you know what? I don't really care. My kids are going to farm this someday. Hopefully my grandkids someday. I'm going to just build that ground up and that's the way I choose to farm. There's, I mean, that's one way to do it too. You can farm however you would like to farm, but what we're trying to tell you here is phosphorus doesn't move around in soil very well at all. Your plant roots are not going to find all the soil phosphorus in one shot. There's no possible chance it's ever going to happen. So you always want to be looking at how much fertilizer is really in that soil. How much phosphorus do I truly have? What should I be adding? How much does it take to get me to where I can maximize yield with that. And then you want to look at how you're doing with everything else too. Because if your phosphorus is tremendously high, but everything else is low, you're not going to get where you want to go. Or if everything else is high and phosphorus is low, you're not going to get where you want to go. You need to get things in balance and keep things in ratio. So we've talked a lot about phosphorus. Now it's time for the egg PhD mailbag. Oh, well, maybe. Just about. Here comes the music.
1: And there we go. All right. First one comes from Roger over in Central Illinois. And Roger said, uh, thanks for all you guys do for ag and keep for your continued education for even us who are maturing. I hope that I'm doing a decent job encouraging and educating the younger generation. And hey, Roger, before I get to your question, I just want to say thanks for the encouraging part. I think that's a really big thing rather than just telling the younger generation what to do and why. Uh, But encouraging them along the way, I think, is really good. Okay, so Roger's question here is, I'm I'm curious, with the price drop in Liberty herbicide this year, what do you think about just spraying Enlist soybeans with Liberty instead of Enlist? Now, what I'm going to do is use my pre's. I'm obviously going to have to add a volunteer corn herbicide in there, too. But as my primary weed-killing pass, using Liberty instead of Enlist one. I can always come back with Enlist one later if I need to.
0: Yeah, I don't have any real big problem with that other than this, and just think about it, that's one mode of action, and it's a total contact killer, no residual. So, you can do that, and there are going to be a lot of people that do it because they look at the economics and they go, ooh, wow, this stuff's pretty reasonable now, I think I'm just going to go this way, even if they bump the rate to the full rate of 43 ounces. But here's another option, and here's something I think a lot of people are going to do. They're going to tank mix. They're going to throw a liberty together within list one. Now, it might be a full rate of liberty and a partial rate of enlist one. I'm not saying everybody's going to run the full rate of enlist one along with that Liberty, but that is something for you to think about too. So if it's me, I'm going to scout the field. I'm going to look and go, all right, how are things looking? How tall are the weeds? What kind of weed pressure do we have? Can I get good coverage? Because Liberty requires great coverage and just kind of analyze things from there. But if you say, yeah, the odds are kind of against me here and I got some tough weeds. I got lots of them. I'd like to have a little residual, which 240 will give you just a few days of residual. And um, I got a few weeds that are bigger than the four inches tall that Liberty, where Liberty is great. If the weeds are six or eight or ten inches tall, Liberty's not going to be as good. In those cases, then I'd definitely be throwing some Enlist One with it. But yeah, I, I mean, they're both good chemistries, Liberty and Enlist One. I just like them together if I can, I know it costs more money, but boy, you put those two together, it is fire. It'll kill just about any weed there is.
1: Thanks for the question. We'll be right back with more of your calls and questions after this.
5: Precision crop nutrition pays and AgroLiquid has precisely what it takes to help you succeed the right products, plus the right expertise to give you guidance based on your soils, your fields, and your goals. While our clean, seed-safe formulations and lower application rates make planter fertilizer easier than ever. AgroLiquid, apply less, expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com.
4: In 1923, Bert R. Benjamin had a vision, an all-purpose tractor that could do more. With that, the Farmall was born. This year, Case IH is celebrating 100 years of Farmall, 100 years of milestones, 100 years of innovation, passion, grit. And they're doing it through your stories. Share them at farmall100.com. One lucky storyteller will win their own Farmall. The tractor that is the one for all.
1: back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. We're broadcasting from the Martin studio and we're taking your calls and questions throughout the rest of the show. It's 844-44-AG-PHD or you can email us radio at agphd.com. And we got some tillage going on right now. Oh, go ahead, Dan. We got some tillage going on right now on our farm. And James uh, online is asking this question. Uh, I have an inline ripper. And I'm curious, how does that fit into your program? How often do you use it? Uh, What are some do's and don'ts, and what results have you seen? we got some real heavy soil over here in southern Minnesota. All
0: right, let's put it this way. A ripper is a tool. Um, Every tool has its place, and every tool has situations where you can use it, and it would be a disaster. (laughs) So a lot of people complain about rippers when it's, uh, I'm going to take the bottom out, I have a wet spring, and now I'm getting stuck and I got issues. But the flip side is, if you've got a compaction problem and you say, well, I'm just going to use a cover crop and it's going to solve my compaction problem. It might. It might. We just haven't been able to find that that works on our farm. So instead, we go out there with tillage and solve the compaction issue and then hopefully try to not have lots of or create lots of compaction in the future. If we if we stay off the field when we should be off the field and things like that, uh, we, we lessen it. But I, I mean, we don't live in a perfect world. We don't farm in perfect conditions all the time. So sooner or later, you're probably going to create some compaction out there. And yes, we have found that inline ripping does work fairly well. So There are a couple of theories on this, and Darren, you and I were just talking uh, beforehand because you were out and one of our guys was going at an angle. I personally don't like going at an angle because now I'm afraid we're going to get waviness out in the field. So uh, my opinion is you need to correct that and we need to go in line, Uh, go right with the rows. That's where now you're going to have much better evenness of your planting, and you're not going to have. And granted, I mean we have. A pretty fancy planter and fancy equipment on that planter so it can adjust and everything but just think of how fast you're going through that field with that planter and how many minute adjustments have to be made constantly it's I'm sure it's going to be good but I'm not happy with good I would like great So we got to get that fixed is one thing. I mean, we'd prefer to do tillage with the rows as much as we can. Now, the downside to that is you're not going to stir things, um, you know, from row to row and stuff like that. That's part of the reason why a lot of guys like to go at an angle. Um, And then sometimes you're going to hit a row. You're not going to hit a row. I mean, again, there's no perfect system or any perfect way to do this. But those are just some of the things that we talk about. The next thing is making sure that you're at the right depth. When Darren and I went to Ukraine in 2006, by the way, we won't be going back soon, but um, in 2006, we were there and they had tremendous soil. It was awesome. I'm like, wow, this is like Iowa soil, like where our dad is from in north central Iowa or where he was from originally. Just fantastic soil, but with what we called South Dakota rainfall. So great soil, just not lots of rain. Anyway. Uh, the point is, we go out in the field, and the guy's running fast with a ripper. And we're like, what the heck? How is he going that fast? Well, it didn't take much to figure out. We just started digging a little bit. This is on a, on a great big field, too. Well, he wasn't getting below the hard pan. He was right above the hard pan. So obviously, it uh, didn't take a whole lot of horsepower to do that. He got below the hard pan, and all of a sudden, it was like, whoa, he was going a heck of a lot slower. And you could see uh, the fuel consumption was a lot higher. But now he was actually doing the job. So that's really the big thing is make sure when you are doing this, you're accomplishing what you want. And it doesn't have to be done every year. Like in our farm, we haven't done a whole lot of ripping for a few years now. Uh, We are doing some more this fall. Uh, We have the time and we just identified some spots. And then the other thing is we like experimenting with things because I didn't think we needed to do so much. Darren did. And I always just say, well, let's prove it in the field. Let's find out and test things out. I'm, I'm, always up for running some trials on stuff. So we do have some fields where we're doing some ripping and even I'm I'm sure some part fields, I think. Right, Darren? Hopefully part fields. We'll see. Anyway, should be we were supposed to do some part fields.
1: There's always unintentional checks out there, Brian. There's always that plus
0: yes, when we convey our thoughts to people and then they go then they come up with their own ideas and it's like, well, this is going so good and I'm I'm out here and I'm running and whatever, and then the whole field gets done. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We were supposed to do half the field. So then we could see the difference there. But I will just tell you this. Um, when you, as an agronomist or a farmer, and you dig around in the soil and you find that all your roots are in the top four inches or maybe the top six, that's a problem. We want the roots going deeper. You have more access to water, more, a little more access to nutrients. Usually you don't have lots of nutrients deep. But the water is a really big thing. And the nutrients can be a thing too. So the other thing that'll it'll that will happen is you'll have a much more stable plant. So anyway, lots of benefits to getting the roots deep. So somehow some way you gotta get the roots deep and in our experience doing a little little bit of ripping from time to time when you've got a compaction problem, that is nice. And we do kind of prefer some of the inline ripping, straight shank, uh, narrow point. so we're not busting everything up. Um, then at least you leave some base out there and generally the roots are going to find those areas where there is less compaction and then they'll get deep. Um, So anyway, those are some of the things that we have preferred and some of the things we've done over the years.
1: All right, get this one from Luke in Minnesota. He said, you guys talk about pulling soil samples and I've been hearing about these smart soil probes where you get almost immediate results and easy data management. It looks like promising technology. Curious, have you guys done any work with it? If so, are the test results reliable, or is it too good to be true? So say that again. It's with what? Smart soil probes that give you instant results with your probe of what your fertility levels are. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah, a couple we've, done, of research we've done we've done, we've done a little done bit of work, work with, with that. we've yeah. done a little bit of work and yeah, you've got to pull samples like that and then also pull another sample and send to the lab and to compare and, and compare those things. One of the downsides of of some of these technologies has been you don't get a complete analysis. Uh, for yep. example, you could do nitrate testing that way. We found it to be pretty accurate, but it's just nitrates. Um, But will you get all the micronutrients and all those kinds of things, base saturations and so forth? No. So until we get that, we're going to keep pulling soil samples the normal way that we do.
0: Yeah, because just like we were talking about, phosphorus to copper, that's a big deal. Phosphorus to zinc, that's a big deal. If all I know is my phosphorus, that's not enough. I I have to know more. But to Darren's point, if there is something where you can do nitrate testing— I'm pretty interested in that because you think about the side dressing that gets done every year in corn throughout most of the corn growing areas and everybody's concerned about nitrogen management. Well, boy, if there was something that was fairly accurate for nitrate testing, that'd be really helpful because, yeah, we run, like on our farm, we run complete tests, complete soil tests in the fall, but in the early summer, we're typically only running nitrate tests. So that's where that would fit. But, yeah, we just don't have much experience with that yet. We're we're always skeptical on a lot of those new things, and we would just encourage you, if you want to try one of them, by all means, do it. But run some tests through a lab at the same time when you do those and then just see how that kind of compares. Oh, and then compare it in wet soils, dry soils, heavy soils, light soils. You see where I'm going with this. So you get... Um, all the different factors in there because maybe you're right on in a dry light soil and you're way off in a wet heavy soil i don't know
1: yeah i do think it would be pretty interesting though even if you only got K, just to go out like in a strip till situation for example and just see what's in the strip versus what's out of the strip and those kinds of things and i think it could help you potentially pull better soil samples.
0: Yeah, and let let's put it this way. A lot of people think we're nuts when in corn and soybeans we're pulling one acre soil test grids. So we have thirty five hundred crop acres on our farm. If we tested the whole thing, that'd be thirty five hundred samples and people go, Oh my gosh, you guys are insane. How much time does that take? And I can't afford that and all this kind of thing. But think about this. How much are you spending per acre on fertilizer, number one? But number two, how big is an acre? It's roughly the size of a football field. Go to a small town high school football game tomorrow night, somewhere, and look at the whole field. Is it exactly even all across the field? Of course it's not. You're going to see variance in that football field just like you'll see in one acre. My point is, if we could get something so we could have even more testing, whether it's with some kind of smart probe or some other system, wow, that'd be great if we could be down to every 10 feet or something like that
1: instead of one acre. Well, thanks for the questions today. If you have questions, again, you can email us, radio at agphd.com. Thanks for listening, and be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.